Thank you, Pastor Edgar. Well, good evening. How are we doing tonight? Good, good. You're there and you're there and you're there. I may choose to preach over there. You don't know. It's all right. Take your Bible and turn with me to Second Thessalonians. We'll be in chapter 3. We've been in this series entitled, Staying the Course. Listening to Pastor Paul give instruction to his people in the church of Thessalonica. We found that it was not only helpful for them, but it's greatly helpful to us today in some very real life, practical teaching that he gives. As we dive into that, I want to start with the question, how many of you tonight would consider yourself, or throughout your life, had considered yourself a workaholic? A workaholic is someone who comes to Sunday night church and brings their laptop to Get some work done just in case the sermon goes too long. They're not going to waste any time. <laughs> some are showing their tablets to me now. On the other hand, how many of you would identify with a bumper sticker that says, the worst day fishing is better than the best day working? <laughs> Maybe that's where your heart connects. Well, I would suggest that neither of these extremes is what God had intended for your life with this idea of work. The key to avoiding burnout and the key to avoiding rusting out is to keep this biblical, balanced perspective on our work. In our series, Staying the Course, today God wants to teach us again some valuable lessons on keeping this balance in our work. We're going to look at staying the course in our work. Before we look closer at Paul's words in 2 Thessalonians 3, I want to take a broader look at a biblical view of work together. We'll go through this portion kind of quick. We have the screens working again. I was sharing with some friends tonight. When the technology is down, we just don't know what to do. I don't know how in the world John Wesley pastored without the internet, without PowerPoint. Uh, but uh, you've got paper there in front of you, and I'll try to uh, uh, slow down as much as is needed to let us catch this. But we won't spend a whole lot of time, but I want to see that the Bible gives a framework, a, a, a picture of work itself. First, we need to note that God models the value of work. God himself models this value of work. From the very beginning of the creative process, God modeled work. In Genesis 2-2, we find this scripture. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. God didn't need to work to create the universe. He simply speaks things into existence. He didn't need six days. He didn't need six years. He didn't need six eons to create the universe. He simply was modeling for us this principle of work that he wants us to live by. He modeled the value of good, hard work and the balance of rest that's needed with it. We're never more like God when we balance our lives with both hard work and the rest he commands us to. We also go further and we see that God purposed for mankind to work. Later in Genesis chapter 2, we find this in 2.15 of Genesis. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. If you thought that hard work was a result of the fall, as a result of sin, we need to think again. God commissioned Adam to work before sin even entered into the picture. The Bible affirms that work is good, and that ability to work is a gift 
from God. Work, as God originally intended it, is intrinsically good and part of his divine purpose for us as humans. But sadly, man's rebellion changed the function of that work. And so third, we see this idea of work in the Bible. The fall makes my work or your work a drudgery at times. When Adam and Eve sinned, they brought this sin's curse on themselves, on their descendants, that's us, and even on creation. Listen to God's declaration to Adam after his sin in Genesis 3, 17 and 19. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of all eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat the food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken for dust you are to dust you will return. The curse made nature uncooperative so that work became painful and man had to sweat for a living. That's why at the end of Solomon's life, one who's credited with being the wisest man who ever lived, we find these words in Ecclesiastes 2.17. The paraphrase of the message puts it this way, Then I took a good look at everything I had done, looked at all the sweat and hard work, but when I looked, I saw nothing but smoke. There was nothing to any of it. Nothing. Because of the fall, our labor is like running on a treadmill. We're working very hard to get somewhere, but we don't appear to get anywhere. As someone observed, you can win the rat race, but you're still a rat. The good news is that God didn't leave us in this hopeless existence of a rat race. He gives us hope to break free. Finally, we see Jesus Christ making my work, your work, redemptive. God hasn't removed the curse and its painful, sweaty toil here on this earth, but he does replace the meaningless drudgery of work. When you and I come to know Jesus in a personal relationship with him, he shows us the redemptive nature of what you and I do. Look at this verse, and, or listen to the verse rather, in Ephesians 2 verse 10, I'll Quote the message paraphrase. He creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join him in the work he does. The good work he has gotten ready for us to do. Work we had better be doing. In Christ we discover that God eternally designed work assignments for us. Each with a task. Each with this ability he's given to us. Each with a place to serve. Whatever the task he calls you to, you will be equipped just as surely a bird is equipped for flight. You will discover his purpose for your life, and he wants to engage you in the work that he's created you to do. In other words, there's no division between secular and sacred for God. All the work we do is sacred to God because he has called us to it. You may feel, well, I had spent my life in a nothing job or i find myself now in my responsibilities they they seem to be less than important because of the curse of the fall your job may involve the painful toil you may yield little job satisfaction but you can glorify god in your work by your attitude as serving unto the lord you may feel your occupation is not holy but if you see it and do it as glory to god he will redeem it 
to you and I, you are God's masterpiece. We are created in Jesus Christ to do good works, which he planned for us in advance to do. Everything about our work must be directed towards him. And as you do, he redeems the work for his glory. With this background, I now want us to look at the text we have tonight. It's in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Turn with me there and and let's read verse 6 through 15 of 2 Thessalonians 3. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this, not because we did not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. But as for you, brothers, never tire of doing what is right. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of him. Do not associate with him in order that he, that he may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. The first thing that Paul does in this letter, in this passage, is he tells his friends to obey the command. We find that in verse 6. Not every believer uh, appreciates the value of hard work. Not every believer would hold to the biblical view of work. Some rationalize that God would never want to give them anything that's uncomfortable. He'd never want them to have to sweat and, and do anything that required pain or hard work from them. This must not be God's will for their life. These people become what one person has termed Christian parasites, leeching off of everyone else. Paul's command is clear. Verse 6 in the message paraphrase, it gives us this idea that we should not associate with lazy people. That's letter A. Don't associate with lazy people. He puts it this way in verse 6. Refuse to have anything to do with those among you who are lazy and refuse to work the way we taught you. Evidently, there were some people in the Thessalonian church who used the anticipation of the Lord's return as an excuse for inactivity. Because they thought Jesus was coming back very soon, they reasoned that it would be futile for them to to do any work, to make any long-term plans. As a result, these people began to, to sponge, to mooch off of other church members, taking advantage of their generosity. Pastor Paul takes a firm action to reverse this destructive trend, and he commands with this instruction of his members in the church to disfellowship or to disengage or to distance themselves from those who are Christian parasites. When we hear that, it sounds pretty unloving. Pastor Paul, just ease up a little bit. 
But the truth is, it's the most loving thing they could have done for what Paul is commanding is for them not to enable lazy people. Don't enable lazy people. The message puts verse 6 this way. Don't permit them to freeload on the rest. One of the most unloving things that we can do for a person is enable their irresponsible behavior. Jesus didn't do that. He met people at their need, but he never left them there. He demanded, he called them out into change. The woman who was caught in adultery, he said to her, go and sin no more. The lame man at the pool of Bethesda, he said, do you want to get well? Get up, pick up your mat and walk. I believe there's few things as destructive as a church in church than when people depend upon a church to meet their needs. See, as Christians, we're not to be consumers. We are to be servants. Following Christ has little to do with what we get and everything to do with what we give. Following Christ has to do with being a servant. It's in serving that we discover joy, the meaning, the purpose that Jesus has called us to. Next, Pastor Paul talks to his church And the second point of following the example. Follow the example that he had set for them, that he had modeled for them in their very midst. He humbly reminds them in verse 7, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. In essence, I can hear mentors or a parent saying, You know better. You have been taught better than this. Follow what has been instructed to you. We were not idle when we were with you. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so we would not be a burden to any of you. In other words, Paul is saying, pull your weight. Pull your weight. Notice how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this. We showed you how to pull your weight when we were with you, so get on with it, Eugene Peterson says. That's pretty straightforward. Paul sets the bar for hard work, and and he has this bar, this example, set for them to follow. Pull your weight. Be generous. Offer to buy lunch. Go the extra mile. People will follow the leadership's example. If the leadership has a strong work ethic, so will the people. One of the things I love about Grace Point is the leaders here at Grace Point have a very strong work ethic. They serve in many ways as if they're serving to the Lord in all that they do. I love that about your pastoral team. They work hard, and and we can say, follow Christ as we follow Christ. Let's work together. In verse 10, Paul reminds them of another principle that, that they had modeled when they were with them. It's this principle, no work, no eat. I didn't know that Paul had the same dad that I did. I don't know if your father gave you advice like that. This is something we've heard over and over again. No work, no eat. It's because it's good biblical advice. Look at verse 10. The NIV says, We gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. Now notice, Paul says, Will not work. He's not critical of those who find themselves in a position where they cannot work. The church has nothing but compassion for those who find themselves where they can physically no longer work. 
They need our love. They need our support. No, Paul is talking about this faithless freeloaders who are always looking for a free handout. If you want work, don't expect to eat, he says. Straightforward talk where Paul brings this challenge. He also brings some encouraging words of how to deal with the pressures and realities of what they're facing. Let's look third at his challenge to receive the encouragement. What are you talking about? Well, we'll look at verse 11 and 13 together. Paul says in verse 11, we hear that some among you are idle. They're not busy. They're busy bodies. In other words, they have too much time on their hand and their idleness is the devil's workshop. My grandma, who we called Nana, loved to say that all the time. Idleness is the devil's workshop, which meant to us as grandkids, you better go find something to play or Nana's going to give you chores to do. If you would say, I'm bored, oh, she could solve that very quickly. Come out to the garden and I'll put you to work. Instead of working hard, these busybodies, they stick their nose in everybody else's business. You know people like that. I do too. These people sometimes are a great source of frustration to us. They can even be a source of frustration to us in our own church family at times. They always have an opinion about how things should go in church and how things should be done, but rarely are they ever willing to do their part in the problem. They're not busy. They're busy bodies. But no, there's a vast difference between putting your nose in other people's business and there's a difference between putting your heart in other people's problems. A busybody panders in curiosity. They just want to know what's going on. They always want to have the scoop. It's not out of compassion. It's out of just curiosity. How do you handle these kind of people? Well, Paul gives us some encouraging advice. You can't change these people. Only God can. So he gives us advice. Release the busybodies to God. Just release them to God. Paul anticipates that some of these busybodies may be hearing the reading of his letter. So he gives a specific word to them in verse 12. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ, settle down and earn the bread you eat. He exhorts them, get busy and you won't have time to gossip. I love this advice that I heard. When you're tempted to gossip, just breathe through your nose. Just keep your mouth shut show me an idle gossip and i'll show you somebody who's not working hard enough like paul exhort them but then release them to god don't let their unhappiness rub off on you in other words don't let anybody steal your joy in ministry that leads to his counsel in verse 13 reaffirm your commitment to god notice what he says in verse 13 the niv puts it this way as for you brother Never tire of, what, of doing what is right. See, Paul knew that the influence of the lazy, of the busybodies, can leave true, hard-working believers discouraged. So Paul tries to encourage them by reminding them that what they're doing, it's right. Their attitude was right. Their hard work for God was appreciated. It was noticed. It was valuable. What he's saying is, don't let anybody's lack of diligence cut into your own diligence. Stay the course in your work. Remember who you're doing this work for. It's all for God. He knows. He sees. He will reward you. Allow their lack of diligence that you see in others 
to reaffirm your commitment to God and the redemptive work that he has called you to. Finally, Pastor Paul challenges his church to heed the admonition that he had given. We find it in verse 14 and 15. Like a good communicator, Paul comes back to these two verses and summarizes the appropriate action that needs to take place. The action that he's calling them to in regards to these Christian parasites. He says two things. Verse 14, do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. What's Paul saying? He's saying don't listen to the gossiper. And don't fellowship with the busybody. Now that's a strong word, but it is an effective discipline. It stops the cancerous spread of gossip right in its tracks. A gossip will go where he or she can find an audience. If no one listens to their gossip, they'll either feel ashamed, or they will shut their mouth and stop, or they will leave. One of those options. A busybody can only survive around people who want to receive their words. If you isolate them, they'll either feel ashamed and stop, or they will move on someplace else. Now remember, Paul is making it clear here, there's a difference between making a person feel ashamed for their actions and, and feel the conviction of the Lord. There's a big difference between that and shaming a person. When I am feeling ashamed for my actions, this is a behavioral that is a thing that is being called out in me. But if I am shamed, if I feel shame, then I am bad. We're not called to make anybody be viewed as bad in the eyes of the Lord, but their actions to be called unto question. Shaming a person is wrong, but allowing them to feel the shame for their behavior is a valuable discipline the Lord brings. That's not unloving. That's what it means, jot this down, to be redemptive. He calls us to be redemptive. Allow them to have the conviction of the Lord upon them. That's not how we should act. Practically, if you find somebody coming to you with Christian gossip, usually in church circles, it's not labeled, hey, I've got gossip for you. It's usually labeled, hey, you know so-and-so. We better pray for them. And then here comes all the stuff. You know, gossip is not just spreading rumors, though that can be gossip. Gossip is sharing information that's not yours to share, whether it be true or false. When people come to you and and share gossip about somebody, here's a quick way to end it. Did you hear what Pharaoh did? Oh, no, but hold on. I love Pharaoh. He's one of my good friends. I, I am so committed to Pharaoh. Then they don't finish the statement. When they hear some things, we can lovingly respond and and say, you know what, I'm not a safe place for that kind of talk. We can have grace with one another, but let's allow the Lord to bring conviction to us. That's the most loving thing that we can do for one another. The message puts it this way in verse 14. It paraphrases, point out such a person and refuse to subsidize his freeloading. I thought we are talking about gossip. How is this freeloading? When I have time, when you have time to speak about all this gossip, that means we have time that we're not serving and ministering to someone else. Why would I waste my speech to speak gossip when I could use my speech to speak encouragement, to speak praise, to to look for what is good? Well, Brady, I, I just can't help but see what's wrong. You know, it doesn't take a very talented person to find what is wrong. 
But it takes a very committed person to the Lord to say, Jesus, I'm going to stand in the gap to be part of your solution for what you want to see take place. That's a heart that understands Christian work. Paul's counsel is very simple. Identify and isolate these busybodies. Ignore their gossip. Don't enable them. Be redemptive. Be reconciling. This is a balanced counsel that Paul offers in his admonition. Sit him down, he says in verse 15, and talk about the problem as someone who cares. The message paraphrases that verse. We don't expel these people from the church. Notice Paul says, don't regard them as your enemy. Make sure they know they're still a part of the family, but clearly spell out what changes are necessary. Hey, we don't do that. The best analogy I can see is when a parent grounds their child because of bad behavior. They don't kick them out of the family, but there are certain privileges that are denied during this period of discipline. They're isolated from friends or they're required to do certain chores. That's the idea here with Paul. Give them time and opportunity for the Holy Spirit to work on their heart. Then you can rejoice of the transformation that the Lord wants to bring in their heart. So in light of Pastor Paul's admonition and counsel, I want to ask you the question, which group are you in? Are you busy? Are you at work for the Lord? Are you a busy body? Have you discovered your part in the family and serving the Lord? Or are you waiting for someone to serve you? Are you idly standing by on the sidelines? My experience has been that people who are most critical of the church have a consumer mindset, not a servant's heart. Maybe I could borrow from a line of JFK's inaugural address. What if we would ask not what our church can do for us, but what we could do for the body of Christ? I think for many, it's not that they don't want to serve maybe you feel like you don't have anything to offer maybe you feel like your past disqualifies you god specializes in turning the broken pieces of your past into stepping stones for the future well i'm not that well versed in church stuff brady actually that's an advantage god hates all the religious stuff he invites you into a personal relationship with him and this exciting journey with him and others is to know Him and not all the religious jargon. Maybe you feel like you're in a dead-end job. The key is not what you do, but who you are doing it for. Let's listen to this final verse in closing together. It's from Ephesians 6, 7. The paraphrase of the message says, Don't just do what you have been, excuse me, don't just do what you have to do to get by, but work heartily as Christ's servants doing what God wants you to do and work with a smile on your face always keeping in mind that no matter what happens no matter who happens to be giving the orders you're really serving God in other words whatever possessions God has put in your hands use them for his glory Whatever time that God has given to you, invest it in His kingdom. Whatever ability God has blessed you with, give your best to His church. Paul gives these words in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6-16. Such a gift, the Word of God, to us as individuals, as a family. It's comforting for me to know that We're not the first ones to deal with real-life problems. 
Paul was challenging the church, don't give up, stay the course in all these things we've been talking about over the last six weeks. And and this week he says, stay the course in your work. You know, Christian work has nothing to do with receiving a paycheck. It has nothing to do with being on a payroll. It has nothing to do with your age. It has nothing to do with any of those things. It has everything to do with being in the army of the Lord. I believe Paul would say to us tonight, If you have breath in your lungs, there is work in you. Let God use you. Heavenly Father, as we have already reflected that you've been speaking to us all day today, I thank you for these words of encouragement that were first for the Thessalonians. But I believe tonight, Lord, they're for us here at Grace Point. Many in this room have such a strong work ethic. I believe you want to encourage us not to get distracted by those who seem to be idle or lazy or those who seem to be looking for a free handout, but you call us to to release them to you and continue to work, continue to serve, and to remember who we serve for. Thank you, Lord, that you did not call us and save us and sanctify us and set us on a shelf just to sit. But you've redeemed us. You've purposed us to be a part of your work. Thank you, Jesus, that at every stage of our life, you are creatively giving us opportunity after opportunity to not only serve you, but to serve the people that you love around us. So help us tonight, Jesus. As we chew on this passage, to not just learn something in our head, but Lord, would you plant something in our heart that would begin to impact our thoughts, our feelings, our desires. We long for you to speak truth to them, Lord, and call us into obedience. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, church, as you take off tonight, we shared this morning a little bit about our responsibility to vote. I also want to highlight our responsibility to pray. We don't have to pray in fear. We know who will be king on November 9th, Jesus. But that does not lift the responsibility we have to pray and to vote. So you are a praying people. You are a people who care not only about your church but your country. So I challenge you, as you pray, talk to others about what the Lord is saying to you. And let's look to him in this time. God bless you. You're